Welcome to Served Neat. I'm your host, Jen Hartman. I am wildly obsessed with marketing, sales, business, and the bottom line. I left corporate America with $3,000 in my bank account and a dream of becoming a successful entrepreneur. In the last two years, I grew my marketing consultancy to multiple six figures, worked with over 160 CEOs, and even started my very own fashion brand. In this podcast, I'll be serving up my best kept secrets to help you grow and scale your business. Each week, you'll hear from myself along with other entrepreneurs. You'll learn about what it actually takes to grow a brand, the ups, the downs, and everything in between. Pour yourself a glass of bourbon and get ready to take notes because it is time to dive into this week's episode. Did you know that just 23% of women say that they feel financially prepared and that only 19% consider themselves to be financially savvy? In a study conducted by U.S. Bank, women were found to be much less confident about money management compared to men. Now, guys, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I have had my fair share of money struggles over the years between massive amounts of student debt to budgeting to money mindset. Ugh. My journey to financial freedom has not been easy. Thankfully, I have had the opportunity to work with a really great personal finance coach, and I have a great team of financial experts helping me with my business, so I am in a much better place now than I've ever been in my entire life. In today's episode, I'm going to be interviewing everyone's favorite millennial money influencer, Money with Katie. Katie Gaddy is the mastermind behind the brand Money with Katie. She's an expert in all things personal finance, tax-advantaged investing, spending habits, and financial psychology. In today's episode, Katie and I are going to have an unfiltered conversation about budgeting, debt, building wealth, and how she has built her brand. Are you ready? I am so excited. So without further ado, let's get into today's interview. Hey, Katie. Welcome to Serve Me. How are you? I'm doing great, Jen. I'm really excited to be here. Me too. I'm so excited to have you on. My listeners absolutely love you, so I know this is going to be great. So I love to start with finding out more about my guest. Who is Money with Katie? How did you get started? Tell us all the things. Love this question. I was actually, it's funny, I was just telling somebody the other day, I was like, I feel like I have like money with Katie is kind of a persona, like morphed into that persona. And someone was like, so who's Katie? Like, who are you, Katie? And I was like, honestly, I don't know anymore. <laughs> like, that's that's what I meditate about in the morning because I'm trying to figure that out. Who am I without money with Katie? But okay, so you asked me the easy question because you asked me who is money with Katie. And money with Katie started basically in response to a longer sequence of events that kind of began when I got my first full-time job. So the long story short is that I started working, was making a pretty average starting salary and realized all too quickly, like after about six months that I didn't really have much to show for it, except for, I don't know, 10 grand in savings or checking. And I had this realization that like, oh, wait, I'm an adult now. and Like I have real income now. and and Surely there is something else that I should be doing with this income to get ahead. You know, like it just kind of felt anticlimactic. And I had this like panicky kind of undercurrent feeling all the time that I wasn't doing enough. And so in response to that, I started really like digging into the weeds of personal finance content anywhere I could get it. Podcasts, blogs, books. I was just like ravenous to learn more. And It was one of those things where I think for some people learning about money, it's like pulling teeth. It's like they have blocks around money. And I was kind of the opposite. Like I always joke that greed was really the like primary emotion that fueled it. Because once I realized that like your money could make money, I was like, oh my God, I want a piece of the action. Like I want to figure out everything that I can about this because that just sounds amazing. So that was kind of the foreground or like the foundation of what would later become Money with Katie, but Money with Katie as a brand and as a business and as a blog started in 
I guess, April of 2020, but not really in earnest until July of 2020. So I started, bought the domain name, you know, had like the idea in April, but then I didn't really do much with it for a few months. And I kind of think about that as like the gestation period because I wasn't really sure what I wanted it to be. Like I didn't really know what I conceptualized. It was just like, okay, well, I know I want to write about money in some way, but there was really no like formal parameters around it. And it really got kicked off in earnest when I did not get a job that I was interviewing for to be a travel rewards credit cards writer for NerdWallet. And I made it all the way through this very grueling interview process. And it was really hard. I mean, I wanted it really badly. And I just told these people for weeks how badly I wanted to write about money full time. And so when I did not get the job, it was incredibly disappointing. But um the funny part is that I kind of then like doubled down on money with Katie out of spite. Like I was like, okay, well, if they're not going to hire me. I'm going to write about money on my own and I'm going to beat them in the search rankings. Like I'm going to have a, a business that pays me more than they would have paid me to do this. And I think that job paid $85,000 a year. So like check, but it, yeah, it kind of, it was like a spite blog at first because I did not get this job that I wanted so badly. And so that's kind of how it started in July of 2020. And it's wild now because that feels like it was so long ago, but the time has really flown by. It's funny how fast online businesses can grow, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been shocking, honestly. You brought up a really interesting point when you were telling us about who Money with Katie is and how you got started. And you talked about how you were fascinated when you found out that your money could make you money. And mm-hmm. I think it's interesting growing up, and I know a lot of my clients were this way too, is our parents always told us as young women to save, 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 save your money, don't spend it. And going into adulthood, I had the same realization where I was like, oh, wait, I can invest my money and my money can make me money. But growing up, nobody ever told me that. Nobody told me I should spend my money to make me more money. Mm -hmm. Did you have the same upbringing or was your upbringing around money different? No, I think mine sounds pretty close to yours. I think that's pretty common, honestly. And I don't have any data or like research to, you know, spout off the top of my head, but I've definitely, that is like common knowledge in the personal finance space is that women are often told to focus on saving and being conservative, whereas men are kind of encouraged to be aggressive, whether that's in work and in their earning potential, their career prospects or in their investing. But What's funny is my parents were very, very frugal, specifically my mom. And I think that it came from the fact that they both worked full time when I was born. But by the time I turned five, she was like, I'm done with this. I had a nanny and I think she kind of was like, I don't love like watching somebody else raise my kid and I'm stressed out all the time because I hate my job and I don't want to do it anymore. So when they dropped down from a two income household to a one income household, like the belt loop really tightened and they got really serious about making sure that we knew where every dollar was going and that we were tracking every dollar very, very intently. And so I always had that perspective, I think, growing up that like, oh, money is clearly a scarce resource because look at how stressed out my parents constantly are about making sure we know where it's going or like the comments about like, oh, well, we can't afford that or we're not going to go out to eat because it's wasteful my mom like keeping the receipts. And so I think that there were good things that came out of that for me because it did teach me the value of a dollar. Like I think you can kind of have the opposite problem if your parents are super spendy and like never teach you about saving. But the issue is that it only goes so far, right? Like learning to save, it's like you kind of get this idea as a kid or like as a young adult that, oh, well, as long as I'm saving some of my money, like I'm good. I'm checking the box and doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm being responsible. But problem is that responsibility, it's like kind of just, it's just layer one. It's like just spending less than you're earning is, it's just like stopping the bleeding. It's just triage. But beyond that, you're not going to get ahead by just saving. And so what I think really got me interested in investing was I noticed that I had all these male friends and they were all men. They were all my male friends that would talk about investing and they'd be talking about how they just made $800 on Tesla stock, or they had been paying for their school with money from an investment account. And because the market had been so good, they already had more money than when they started. 
And so I hear like chatter like this from my male friends. And I was like, well, what the fuck? Like, why are none of my female friends talking about this? Why did none of them seem interested in this? And so, but again, it, it kind of came down to greed for me that like, it was just hearing people talk about this and all the male friends that I had that kind of obviously knew something that I did not know that like prompted me to want to look into it more. But that was certainly one of the original kind of like annoyances or grievances that I had. It's like, well, wait a second. Why did none of the females care about this or seem to care? It's like, I'm pretty sure women like money just as much as men do. So why am I not hearing that from them? But no, I, I would agree. I think my upbringing was very similar and that the focus was always on spending less and not investing and not earning more. Those things never really kind of entered the picture. It was almost always just like saving your money and like being responsible. Wow. Yeah. So interesting. And you also, again, brought up another interesting point about your guy friends openly talking about money and how they were making money and how they making. I would love to see more women talking about money. And I think that you're one of those people who you're leading the way. You're making those conversations happen. But I want to see more women talking about money. I just think it's such a good conversation to have. I think it's really important. Not only as an entrepreneur, but as somebody who works in nine to five, like I think you should be talking about your salary and where you're at because it helps more women have an understanding of where they're at and how they can make more. So yeah, anyway, side rant for me. Let's go ahead and talk about what the most challenging part of your journey to financial freedom has been. Mm, that's a good question. And by the way, I completely agree. And I think that that pay transparency and kind of financial transparency so crucial, especially between men and women. Like, this is a great, if you're a guy listening to this, a great way for you to help your female counterparts is to tell them how much you're getting paid to do the same job that they're doing. Like, it's going to feel uncomfortable, but it's like, you got to put the pressure on the companies to strive for that equality. And the only way that that happens is if people start talking. And it doesn't sound like it would do very much, but I think we'd all be surprised. I've been inside companies before where this issue has come up and because of the pressure that the employees were putting on leadership, things change. So I would just add that. But okay, so the most difficult piece of the finance. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think for me, oftentimes I think we hear that like the beginning is the hardest. I would actually push back and say that for me, the middle is the hardest because the beginning is when motivation can be very powerful and you're inspired, right? And like everything feels like new and shiny and sparkly. And you're like, it's like, oh my God, this whole new world has been open to me. And at least for me, that's how I felt. Like personally speaking, when I first started learning about investing and financial independence, financial freedom, I was so inspired. I was willing to do anything. I was like, I'll work extra jobs. I'll cut back on restaurants. I'll stop getting highlights. Like, I don't care what it takes. I'm just, I want this so badly. And so the first like 100,000 actually wasn't that hard because I was just so fired up about it. What became more difficult was like, you know, if you're trying to get a million bucks, if the goal is I want a million dollars in the bank, I want a million dollars in a brokerage account, whatever it is, the first 100,000 is not the hardest. The 300,000 range is the hardest because at that point you've been going at it for probably a while, but you still look and you're like, Oh my God, fuck. I still have so far to go. Like I'm still not even close. And it has taken so much work, probably sacrifice, probably strategy. Like, so I think that's where for me personally, like the way that I found kind of an antidote to that. Well, two things. The first was trying to fall in love with just the process. Like I think. If you can learn to love the process, it's just so much easier and so much more enjoyable. If it's like, if you just love the hustle, if you love the game, it's like you are going to have a much better time at it than if it's just like, oh my God, I just hate my job. I don't want to do it anymore. And I'm going to cut back on my Uber Eats until I can retire. It's like, that's going to be a pretty miserable road. The other thing was candidly earning more money and having a business, right? And like, adding on supplementing my nine to five income, which by the way, like the job market right now is amazing for anyone that does work nine to five. And now is a great time to go shop around and see what your market value is and see if you can potentially level up somewhere. But leveling up the nine to five income by switching companies and really like focusing on building a business to which like I had direct 
impact on the outcomes. And like my work was directly correlated to how much money it made. Both of those things really kind of felt like cheat codes to me. And I feel like it's something we don't talk about enough or like, there's this idea of like, oh, well, you can't just go out and make more money. It's like, oh, you kind of can. Like, there are a lot of opportunities out there. And if you're telling yourself that all you can do is save or spend less, that will work. That is one way to do it. But it is less fun and probably going to be more time consuming. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I have quite a few nine to five friends still. And they're always mind blown when I talk about, oh, I can just make $10,000 today if I want to. Yeah, yes. What? And I'm like, (laughs) when you have your own business, you can make however much money you want to make. And I do think that having a nine to five is great, especially for the sake of knowing what you're going to be making every two weeks. I think that's fantastic, especially depending on where you're at in life as well, because some people just need that security. But adding on to that and having a side hustle or having a business Mm -hmm. or make whatever you want to make whenever you want to make it is so key, especially to you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think the nine to five too, like, I really value the formal work experience I've had, and I've seen you talk about the same thing. It's like you get a lot of experience from working with big corporate budgets or from working with different kind of difficult personalities or like you can learn from people that have more experience than you. I think it's just the the, the kind of the key is knowing when like, okay, now I know enough to go like put this into like supercharged like turbo drive. Oh, absolutely. Okay, next question. What's a popular piece of financial advice that you disagree with? Okay, I'll use my go-to answer. Well, maybe I shouldn't. I'm like, should I use my go-to answer for this one or should I try to think of something different? I'll tell you. The one that I was thinking of off the top of my head was just that like buying a house is always better. That that's like societally just it's religion in America that ownership is always the better route. I think I've spent quite a bit of time online trying to like point people to the data about high price to rent ratio cities, but like that just is just blatantly not true. So I've spent like my own personal crusade. It's like show people that they don't have to buy a home to build wealth. But I'm trying to think if there's maybe another less obvious one or one that I'm less soapboxy about with personal finance. I guess um one thing that I Maybe I wouldn't say it's like a piece of personal finance advice that I disagree with, but something that I would say is maybe less focused on than it should be. Or like, I don't see enough about this for how impactful it can be is the power of pre-tax investing accounts and and tax-free investing accounts for people, especially people who make a lot of money. If you're a high earner, you're in a high marginal tax bracket. That's something that it did inspire a a course product that I created. But I think there's this always this idea with investing that it's like, it just matters what you're investing in. Like, oh, am I investing in tech or am I investing in this sector or international? And it's like, yes, the diversification of the actual funds or stocks or products that you're buying, like that obviously matters. But I think what we fail to recognize or like put enough emphasis on in personal finance is that where you're investing almost matters more because the tax drag year over year over year over the decades and especially that upfront tax break that you can get if you're in a 37% or 35% marginal tax bracket is almost impossible to beat just through having better returns of what you're investing in. So I kind of like to think about it like, well, what game do you want to play? Do you want to play the stock market game where there are no rules and you're playing against every other individual investor and you're up against hedge funds and professional investors who spend all their time and money and resources doing this? Do you want to try to beat the market or do you want to play the game where the rules are written very explicitly in the tax code? They tell you how to win and the outcomes are guaranteed. It's like, to me, there's just no competition there. And I think we spend too much time kind of arguing or thinking about like, well, what am I going to invest in? What stock am I going to buy? What index fund am I going to buy? When in reality, ultimately, what's going to make more of a difference in the long term is where you're making those investments, whether you're making them in a pre-tax account, a Roth account, an HSA, or like just a general taxable brokerage account. So I think that we, we fail to recognize the impact that that can have. Oh, that's so interesting. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. What do you think about the whole, well, if you want to achieve financial freedom, you can't buy Starbucks every day? 
Oh my gosh. Well, I think, like, fortunately, I think the personal finance community has started to recognize and, like, move away from that type of jargon. Like, Elvest really popularized the, like, just buy the fucking latte thing. And I think it comes down to um, what Ramit Saiti will call the $3 questions versus the $30,000 questions. And I think anytime you have a personal finance philosophy that's rooted in scarcity and just this idea of like less, like buy less, consume less, spend less, it's going to naturally draw you into the weeds of like the $8 Hulu subscription or the $3 coffee. And it's like, ultimately, those things, while sure they add up, they are not going to have nearly as big of an impact as, for example, investing in a 401k. If you're going to invest in a 401k or a SEP IRA, and you're going to max that shit out, you can save $10,000 in taxes easily, depending on your tax rate. So you look at that and you're like, well, I'm either going to spend... Actually, let's do a quick math problem, honestly. Let's do $3 times 365. Okay, that's $1,000. So you can spend $1,000 a year on coffee, right? Buying Starbucks every single day. And you can stress about cutting back and saving that 1000 or you can invest your money in a slightly smarter way and save 10000 in taxes. So to me, it's, it's kind of just like playing out the eventual outcomes of things and actually looking at the numbers. And for some people, if you make $30,000 a year, okay, well, now 1000 bucks, but that's not insignificant. Like maybe cutting back coffee does make sense for you. And, and that is something that could make a difference in your life. But I think looking at the proportions of like the types of problems financially that you're worried about and just asking yourself, like, is this worth my time? If I make $30,000 a year, cutting back to save $1,000 actually probably makes sense. If I make $30,000 a month, it is the biggest waste of my time to worry about a $3 purchase because my time is just literally more valuable than that. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> of course. You like I'm not a big spender, but my Starbucks every morning makes me so happy. And anytime I hear someone say, Oh, you gotta cut out Starbucks, you're never gonna be wealthy if you get Starbucks every day, I'm like, excuse me, man. And think about how much productivity you probably get out of that Starbucks. Like I think there's so much power in those rituals and I think as with anything can be taken too far, like I can see how they can compound and I have friends that not really anymore, but I remember having like friends in Dallas that had very expensive lifestyles and like just frankly did not make enough money to cover it. And so I think it's like, it's a slippery slope. Like I always get a little bit cagey when we try to suggest that spending doesn't matter at all because it obviously does. Like you can have a $250,000 a year income and spend $245,000 a year you're still living paycheck to paycheck. Like, make no mistake, paycheck to paycheck knows no upper limit. But I think it's one of those things where it almost feels like, almost feels like it's kind of a trap. It's like a diversion. Like, if you get people to focus on, like, the little bullshit that doesn't matter, it holds them back, right? Because, like, they're not going to think about the fact that, hey, maybe this caffeine is going to power me to be able to work for two extra hours on a side business while I work full time, right? And, like, ultimately the ROI on that time and that caffeination is very high. So I think it's sometimes my conspiracy theory mind is like, those are just things that we tell people to keep them small. Oh, what a quote. <laughs> okay. Katie, do you mind sharing your net worth and Not at all. tips and tricks that helped you get there? Sure. So my net worth today I believe is around $520,000. Yep. Halfway to a million, baby. We did it, which is especially impressive in my mind for me. Like I've impressed myself because my net worth this time last year was like $140,000. So that's a pretty substantial increase. And to kind of tie it back to the income piece. Yes. Obviously, all of that money is in the stock market. Most of it. I mean, not all of it. Some of it is set aside in cash for taxes because I'm going to have to pay my big fat tax bill in April. But the majority of it, we'll say 90% of it is in the stock market. And the stock market had an amazing year. So I think the one key takeaway is like, 
money that's invested will grow for you, right? You will, even if you're just investing in the total stock market, you're, you're going to match the market. And that means this year, your money would be up 20% on its own. But the other key takeaway that I think we can't really ignore is that I made a lot of money this year. And because my lifestyle did not inflate proportionally, I was able to invest most of it. So I think in 2021, my total income was around 350,000. And I think I spent about 40,000. So the key is like, you want to increase the margin, right? It's like, what is the difference between what I'm bringing in and what's going out? And there are two ways to increase that margin. You can spend less or you can earn more. And if you do both, or you keep the spending the same and continue to earn more, you're going to find that it's actually pretty easy to build wealth. The problem that I think a lot of people find themselves there, the cycle is that if you're not intentional about your money and you don't have a plan for it, and there's not a broader vision guiding your behavior, what tends to happen is you see you have a $30,000 a month and you're like, great, I'm going to go on a five-star vacation and pay for it in cash and bring four of my friends. And it's like, you start to adjust the lifestyle upward too. And so you're eliminating all the margin. And so earning more is not the answer on its own, but I do think that it has enabled me to grow my net worth substantially in the last 12 months. That's amazing. Congratulations. Well, thanks, Jen. (laughs) Talk about the fact that you're 26 years old, correct? I actually turned 27 like 10 days ago. So I'm 27 now. Okay, you're right. I forgot you just had a birthday. I just had a birthday. That's so amazing because I feel like most of us 27-year-olds are like in the negative for our net worth. So the fact Well, and yeah, I appreciate that. And I think I almost want to say like, I was just talking to somebody about this a little while ago that I had a distinct advantage in that I did not have student loans. Most 27-year-olds are have a negative net worth because they have student debt. And like a lot of the 27 year olds that have student debt have no control over that. I have such a side rant about student lending and how kind of predatory it is that you will give a hundred thousand dollars to an 18 year old that like doesn't even know what they want to major in. I think it's so backwards. But anyway, I do want to like throw that out there because I think that sometimes comparison can be unhelpful. And so I want people to know that like I definitely had a distinct leg up. Because even though I was graduating college with no money, I wasn't in the negative. I was starting at zero. And like starting at zero as a 22 year old is actually a pretty amazing thing. When you think about the way education has changed and become more expensive in this country. Thank you so much for pointing that out. Because I feel like most of my listeners are, they went to college, they went to grad school and so much debt. And I think that I mean, this is a whole other conversation, but I do think that education is going to change. I don't think that college is going to be as necessary in about five or 10 years from now. And I don't think we're going to see as many 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds in as much debt as maybe people might. I think things are going to be very different. Totally. Um, I I think things are definitely going to change when it comes to education. But anyways, I want to move on. And I do want to talk about your business, Money with Katie. Yeah, when it comes to your business, what have you chosen to spend money on? And what have you chosen to save money on? Okay, so this is a really good question. And I think the one thing that comes to mind when you ask me that question is the fact that applying an ultra frugal mindset to business at first helped me because it forced me to learn the ropes and the ins and outs. Like I'm happy that I did everything myself in the beginning because I learned so much about what I was doing, why I was doing it. It was a good experience, you know? Like I have a lot of knowledge that I feel like I could now take and apply and go start another online business if I wanted to. And like all of those learnings would carry forward. However, I think it got to the point where I recognized that I was actually holding myself back by insisting on doing everything myself. And the best kind of investment or purchase that I've made so far has been hiring somebody to help me build out email drips and sales funnels because I didn't have any of those and I had no idea what I was doing. And I, um, I did end up hiring somebody just hourly to work on those for me. 
and just having someone that actually knows what they're doing, it has made a world of difference. She set up my high earners code launch. She set up the 2022 wealth planner launch. She set up all the indoctrination funnels and all of the upsells and downsells and things that like I would have had to do completely manually otherwise. And so that has been an amazing investment of my business income, my revenue that has increased my income probably tenfold in some cases with some of these digital products that you want them to sell themselves, right? Like you don't want to have to be putting the hard sell on social or like, I personally felt like I was getting distracted because I felt like I had to be plugging my products on social media all the time to generate interest. And instead, this has given me the freedom to actually focus on just the content creation and getting people on the email list so that the email funnels can do that for me and they can sell the products and I can focus on just providing free value and bringing more people into the community in a way that I'm not having to put the hard sell on them on social media. For me as a content creator, that just was kind of like a no-brainer. And I think, especially because I do this on the side, the automation side of it was so important because I don't have endless time to work on. Like I have to be very intentional about how I spend the time that I have carved out in the day for Money with Katie. I have to do things that are going to move the business forward. I can't piss away time like trying to sell a $40 product to somebody in the DMs. Like it's just, it's not a good use of my time and it doesn't scale. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I love that you brought in somebody to help you with your funnels because that makes the biggest difference when it comes to passive income. So that's amazing. Do you have anybody else on your team right now or is it just you two? It's just us. Well, I guess technically there's one other person that does Pinterest, but she is a little bit more autonomous. So the email marketing gal and I are in pretty close contact because it's funny, she kind of came in and I, I just wanted her to build out the funnels. I wanted to write them, but I wanted somebody to give me the strategy and to tell me like, just, I mean, how many emails do I send? How many days apart? To whom? Like, and she kind of came in and was like, oh no, no, bro, you don't like, yeah, you need that. But you also like, the the platform where people are purchasing things from you isn't tied to your email list. So like you don't even know who your buyers are at this point. And by the way, like the way that people are accessing your course materials is inefficient because you can't see X, Y, like she like basically had us overhaul the entire damn thing. So I like brought someone in thinking I was going to write welcome funnels and like ended up like blowing up the entire e-commerce side of my business and making it better. So we are in pretty close contact all the time. She works. I don't know, probably 20 hours a week for me. Maybe not that much consistently, but like before a launch and when we were trying to streamline everything, it was a lot of time that she was spending. And yeah, so we're in pretty close contact, but the the Pinterest gal, she's more autonomous. I don't know if if you know Jenna Kutcher, but she is kind of in that ecosystem. She doesn't work for Jenna Kutcher, but she kind of has friends on Jenna Kutcher's Pinterest team and she's taken all the Pinterest courses that Jenna does. So I just kind of told her, like, I don't care, like, what you do. I trust you. Do whatever you think is going to work, and I'll pay you for it. Like, I don't even need to know. Tell me. Tell me if it works. Tell me if it doesn't work. But so I just get an invoice from her every month, and then I'll look at my Pinterest and be like, oh, there's a thousand new pins. Great. So I think in in some ways we are throwing things to the wall and seeing what sticks. But that's, that's just part of it sometimes. But other than that, that's it on the team for now. Amazing. So you operate a very lean team. I love Yes. So we all know that time is money. What tools, resources do you leverage to save time in your business? Well, I think I'm pretty lean from a tool perspective too. I would say that what has helped me save time is being very ruthless about my prioritization. So I actually turned email notifications off on my phone. I now have this rule where I won't even get into my email unless I have 30 minutes blocked specifically for that task. Because what I found what I was doing time management wise was I would like sit down to start a two hour block of time that I had set aside to work on money with Katie and have the best of intentions for that time. I'm going to write a new blog post. I'm going to record a new podcast episode. I'm going to, you know, work on the strategy, do something that's going to drive the business forward. And then I would end up just like, going through my emails and and like doing the low level little shit that like feels good. Like you can check the thing off the list and it's like satisfying productivity wise, but it was just giving me that like psychological, like being productive versus like, Oh, this is actually going to make a difference. So 
I think fixing my relationship with email and not letting it seep into every single thing that I do all day long, where like I would get push notifications on a walk with the dog and then sit there and I'm trying to listen to a podcast to learn about something new that I'm going to write about. But now instead I'm like tuned out and I'm like trying to answer this person's email that's not urgent at all, but it's just, it gives me that little dopamine boost of like getting something done and checking something off the list. So I would say that's a time management thing that has actually made a really big difference for me. Um, Another tool actually that I would call out here too is Zapier. That was something that my email marketing girl put me on. And I don't understand how it works. I don't even know how to use it. All I know is that it integrates like everything. So like every piece of the purchase, fulfillment, like lead gen, nurture and fulfillment and like postpart, all of it just happens on its own because that system is like connecting different things. So that has been really amazing. And I'm so thankful for the tool, even though I have literally no idea how to use it myself. No idea. Katie, I love Zapier. Zapier is my love language. Maybe someday you can show me how to actually use it because if she ever left me, I would be so sorry. Yeah, we'll have to have a conversation about Zapier, but I love it because it just connects so many different platforms together. Oh, okay. I'm not going to go down. Like, I'm not going to rant about Zapier. We're going <laughs> to. So I know that you are literally the content queen. You're amazing. Oh, thank you. And like, you're very entertaining. I know you have funnels. I know you have Pinterest. What else is going on for your marketing strategies for Money with Katie? Oh, man. Honestly, I feel like you hit most of them. The, yeah, the, the social channels, just free, like, co- I guess it's content marketing. But like, really, the content itself, in some ways, is the product because of sponsorships. So I would say that, like, yes, Money with Katie makes money by selling digital products to readers and, and people that are, you know, maybe enjoying the free content and then want to level up and pay for something that is going to help them take things a step further. But the content itself functions as a source of revenue because sponsors and partners will pay sometimes thousands of dollars to sponsor a blog post. So I would say for me, it's kind of half and half revenue wise where things are coming from. And I personally prefer the money that comes from sponsors and brands because I know that they have deeper pockets. And so it's like, I would much rather charge a brand $5,000 and then give it to you for free than make you pay $100 for something and get that, you know, 50 times or whatever. But I think the one piece of advice that I heard early on that really stuck with me marketing wise was don't be afraid to do things that don't scale when you're starting out. Like not everything you do has to scale. Sometimes you just have to be like brute force, forcing your way to that next level. So like, I love the Sarah Blakely Spanks example where like she would go into Neiman Marcus and she'd buy the like the plastic like stands and then like basically pretend she worked there and just go up to the cash registers in the women's clothing department and put the Spanx it on the cash register and like the person working there just assumed she also worked there and that like it was okay and someone gave her permission to do it and like those little things that doesn't scale she couldn't go to every department store in america and do that but when she was trying to get it off the ground and like just get that first wave of interest she had to do things that was kind of scrappy and doesn't scale and so for me the equivalent of that early on was i would answer every single dm that i would receive and i would give plenty of free value away. And I would have long conversations with people in the DMs and help them through their problems and really listen to them. That doesn't scale. Like even today now, I my DMs kind of become a dumpster fire and I'll just ignore them for a week on end because they stress me out and they just keep piling up. But in the beginning, when I had a thousand followers, I made it such a priority to give every single person so much attention And it really did build those like true fans that we now have a real relationship and they are ride or die. They tell all their friends about money with Katie. Like they are the evangelists because of that not scalable marketing tactic that, that happened early on. And I think after us, you have to know like when to turn those off, you know, because eventually they will get to the point where like they're hurting you more than they're helping you. But when you're first starting out, you kind of have to be willing to do anything to will your business into existence. 
and to make it happen and to like get that first burst of momentum before you can start working smarter, not harder. But I think like whenever somebody asks about starting a blog or trying to monetize content, if they're asking about how do I monetize this from day one, I'm like, that cannot be the mindset. Like the mindset just has to be, I need to provide as much value as possible and help as many people as possible, entertain as many people as possible. Just focus on like building the, that for those first thousand true fans that are going to ride or die for you. And don't worry about the fact that it's not making any money. I think that that's kind of the irony of, of some of those early day like marketing tactics. Katie, you just gave away so much gold. I want to point out to you. <laughs> One, there is nothing wrong with giving away free advice, especially in your early days of business, because that is what builds up a fan base. That is what eventually gets people to buy from you. So don't be afraid to give away things for free. I gave away a lot for free. I worked on one for free to build up my base of clients, to be able to build up case studies, to be able to build a list of references. Yes. Yes. For free. Stop letting other online business owners tell you to not do things for free. It's okay to give things away for free for a little bit. And then number two, something I want you to go a little bit more into depth on. You talked about sponsorship. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about how you get these sponsorships? Are you going after these brands or are they going after you? Yes. So that's a great question. And I think it's something that if you're leveraging content marketing in your business at all, it makes sense to pursue this because if you're going to put the work in to write in the blog posts anyway, you might as well see if a brand wants to pay to sponsor it. And once you have the audience and you have some eyeballs on that page, blogging is an amazing way to make money because there's a lot of Instagram and TikTok creators out there. Very few of them actually have blogs or websites, right? Like that profile is the business. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just to say that if you have an offering of an actual substantive long form piece of content, whether that's a podcast or a blog or a YouTube channel where you've got that, again, longer form, you're going to stand out because it's just rarer because it takes more work. So with the, the sponsorships, the way that I've gotten all of my sponsorships has been literally DMing the brand on Instagram and saying, hi, hello, my name's Katie and this is my money account and I have this website. Here it is. Here's an example of a blog post that has done really well. I get this many visitors per month, this many unique page views per month. And I would love to work together. Can you send me an email? And I will get ghosted half the time and the other half of the time they'll say, great. And you don't have to have 20,000 followers to do that. I think when I got my Betterment deal, I think I had 4,000 followers. And they were very willing to pay for blog posts from day one. And then once you get the first sponsorship, it's very easy to sell the next few because you can say, Oh, well, I work with Betterment or, you know, then I started working with Fundrise and then I started working with Copilot. And in every single case, it's been a company that I have sought out because I either already use them or I believe in them or I think that their mission really supports what I'm doing. But there's so much opportunity for organic brand affinity that like if you're in your business and you're using Flowdesk, okay, great. If you're going to tell other people to use Flowdesk, you might as well get paid to do that, right? So I think it just comes down to like looking at what's a natural fit for you, thinking about the brands that support you in your everyday life. And then if they can be integrated into the content, wonderful. If you have a decent following, that brand may be willing to pay for that. So if they have an influencer marketing budget, then that's a great place to start. And if they don't have an influencer marketing budget, at least get on the affiliate train. Because if you're going to be referring people to these products or services, you can probably make some incremental income through affiliates too. Amazing. What great advice. Thank you so much, Katie. Okay. I want to move on to a couple of different scenarios that my audience has written in about. Okay. First up, I'm in $5,000 of credit card debt and $20,000 of federal student loan debt, and I have a $10,000 car loan. My debt feels so overwhelming sometimes. Mm-hmm. Where do I even start? It's a great question. For starters, I would say you're not alone. That is very common. And frankly, I've talked to hundreds, if not thousands of women now one-on-one about their debt. Your debt is incredibly, it may not feel like it. It's very manageable compared to some of the scenarios that I've 
heard. So even though it might feel overwhelming and soul crushing because it's like you're the one dealing with it, just know that you, it is not going to take you very long to dig your, your way out of that. And, uh, it's $5,000 credit card debt. No problem. You will knock that out in no time. I would say the way that I would think about those three pieces of debt. So you told me credit card debt. I can assume that that has a very high interest rate. Federal student loan debt. So I know that your interest rate right now is 0%. You're paying no interest on that through May. And then the car note. And typically, not always, but most car notes are at or around 4% or lower. So without knowing the interest rate of the car note, the way that I would say makes the most strategic sense to think about debt is to look at the interest rate associated with that debt and let that guide you. So by that, I mean, you always want to think about opportunity cost, right? Like if you have money coming in every month, every single dollar that you either spend, save, or use for debt payoff, it has an alternative path that it could have gone down. Every dollar you spend could have been saved potentially. Not not every single one, obviously, because you do have expenses that you have to pay to stay alive. Um, every dollar that you invest could have been used toward debt payoff and vice versa. Every dollar that you put towards debt could have been invested. So when we think about this opportunity cost and weighing that decision, I like to think about what is the return that I could anticipate to get in the stock market by investing this money long term. So maybe not in the next three months, but in the next 10 years, what can I feasibly expect to get from this money? And we know that the average stock market return over the last 100 years, when annualized, granted, it's some years it's up 50%, some years it's down 25%, but the average annual return is around 10%. And when you adjust that for inflation, it's around 7%. So usually, if I am looking at somebody's debt, I look at that opportunity cost of the money that we'd be putting towards it and say, are we going to get further ahead by paying off that debt faster and saving the money on the interest? Or are we going to get further ahead by investing that money in the stock market? And if the interest rate is below, well below 7%, maybe just under 7%, it's reasonable to assume that we could probably make that dollar go further by investing it into the stock market versus using it to save money on interest. So. The credit card is really the only use case where like you're almost never going to get ahead by investing. Like you should almost always just focus on paying off the credit card debt first. But the student loan debt, the car debt, those both fall into the category for me of like just make the minimum payments. There's nothing wrong with debt. In fact, rich people love debt. They leverage debt to get richer. It's like a known thing. If you Google Wall Street Journal, Rich people love debt or something. I'll find the article and send it to you. It basically shows that like the wealthiest people in the world are just borrowing against their own wealth and using that money to live to avoid paying taxes on their capital gains. So I think this idea that like being in any kind of debt ever is this terrible, shameful mistake, irresponsible, like not at all. Student loan debt means you went to school, you got a degree. Great. Car debt means that you have probably made the wise decision to finance that car instead of paying cash for it so that you can use the money for more noble pursuits like investing and you're not surrendering to the opportunity cost of, you know, plunking down all this cash for something that's a depreciating asset. The credit card debt is really the only one that I would say you want to focus on paying that down as fast as possible. The rest of it, I mean, I think you're fine to let it ride make the minimum payments and recognize that debt is not a personal failing. I love that advice. That was so good. And I love that I love that you mentioned that debt is not a bad thing because I agree. I mean, I took out debt to go to school, to go to undergrad, to go to grad school, yep. to the house. You know what I mean? Like debt is okay. It's okay to have debt as long as you It's also like how normal people like get ahead. Like debt can be leveraged. If you do not have the money to go to school and you use that money to go to school to get a degree that you then allows you to make a lot of money, that debt was an amazing decision. Like, yes, we could sit here and talk about how like the student loan crisis is a crisis. And like, I know I said it's predatory. I do think it's predatory. But but like your personal decision to take out debt to get a degree that enabled you to make a lot of money 
that was a wise choice. Like you made the right decision in doing that. So completely, completely agree. Awesome. Okay. Scenario number two. I'm wanting to leave my full-time job soon and go full-time into entrepreneurship. How do I begin to prepare financially to make the sleep? Oh, man. So I always say, and keep in mind, this is advice coming from somebody that has not left a full-time job to do full-time entrepreneurship. So I'm not speaking from like personal experience here. But I would say for me, without knowing anything else about the business and how much money you're making in your full-time job and how much money you're making in your business, I think the first thing that's probably too obvious, but I still want to state it just in case there's any question here, you need proof of concept. Like if the business is not making money, I would not recommend leaving a full-time job to go do it because you don't know that it's going to make money, right? Like you want to make sure that what you're doing has a viable financial outcome associated with it. And I I also think this is advice that I heard a while ago that I've since kind of internalized and will regurgitate now is that sometimes I think people believe that like they need to be doing a business full-time even to start. It's like, oh, well, I'm focused on my full-time job and I I need to put a clear line in the sand or like a clean break before I start my new business. And I think that can sometimes backfire because the stress of trying to start something like to get that initial momentum to like make the first dollar when you have no other income coming in can be a little bit prohibitive because it's stressful, right? Like you have no money. What are you going to do? So I think if you're dead set on starting a business, like day one of starting your business, you want that to happen without having a full-time job. I would say that financially, the thing that needs to happen is you need to make sure that you can cover all of your expenses for six months to a year. I mean, you want to have plenty of runway because I think the last thing that you want to do is get yourself into a situation where you are just desperate to make money. It's like, I'm desperate to make the sale. I'm desperate to sell the thing. It's like people can smell that on you. You want to be selling from a place of confidence and abundance and not oh my God, I need to make this sale or like I'm not going to be able to pay rent. Not what you want. So I would say they're, the two paths are either like, okay, fine, quit the full-time job before you even start, but like have six months to a year in cash that you can live on so that you're not stressed if it takes a little bit longer to get started. Or, you know, do it on the side while you have your full-time job and rely on the full-time paycheck to give you the sense of stability while you grow the business. And obviously that's a lot of work, but I think in some ways it's potentially less stressful. I'm actually curious what you think about this, Jen, because this is frankly more your domain of like business coaching. So I'm really curious what your take is on this. I like your point of view on it. And I agree with you because guess what I did? I went full time in my business and I had $3,000 to my name. I had so much I had to pay in my life. I made the worst decision. Like anytime someone's like, well, what do you recommend? I'm like, well, don't do what I did because <laughs> I ever made. And I remember selling from a place of, oh my God, if I don't make the sale, I don't have enough money to pay my bill. And that's kind of how I went about my business for the first three months I went full time in my business. It was scary and I don't recommend it. So your advice on having six months of savings minimum is ideal. And I want you guys to keep in mind as well, starting a business is expensive. You're going to spend money. So you're going to want some money to play with. You're going to want money for when things inevitably don't go your way. What if you don't make a sale for the first six months? What if you don't make any money for the first year? Yeah. Not to be negative or anything, but it is a very possible scenario that you don't make money for a while. So just be prepared Mm -hmm. and have the money for when things don't go your way. It's also interesting because I can also see the side of like, the desperation, like, you know, that failure is not an option. So you're not going to let yourself fail. I can also see that side of it. And I think that like, it's important to mention that I can only speak from my personal experience, right? And like, you can only speak from your personal experience. And I think that there's probably no true, right or wrong way to do this. If you are determined, you're going to make it happen no matter what, right? Like, and that's the cool thing. But I think there are To your point about like, well, don't do it the way I did it. It's like, clearly it worked out very well for you. That doesn't mean it's going to work out very well for somebody else because I think it comes down to knowing yourself. Like you were in that place of like, oh shit, I got to close on this or like, I'm not going to be able to pay my mortgage. 
And that motivated you and that pushed you further. I think I would shut down if I had that type of pressure on me. So I think it does kind of come down to like the self-awareness around when do I work best? And like, what, let me, let me cultivate the environment that's going to force my success. For me, being prepared and knowing that like I could go the next two years without making another dollar and still be fine. That enables me to do my best because it gives me the security that I need to perform. And like, if that's not how your brain operates, that's worth knowing. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you too, because I am the type of person who performs really well under pressure. So, but you're not a good trait. That's a really good trait. (laughs) Oh yeah, you're right. It it definitely depends on your quality. So I like that you pointed that one. Okay. Next scenario that I want to talk about. I recently started making more money in my business than I know what to do with. When I'm managing this influx of cash, where do I even start? Because I am terrified. I'd say you've got a really great problem on your hands. I think this is where like the basics of financial fluency kind of come into play because so the order of operations, if you're making a lot of money, it's probably always going to be more or less the same. And I'll just kind of skew this for entrepreneurship because I know that that's primarily the audience for this podcast is, is entrepreneurs, people that have self-employment income. So think first things first, you look at the base level foundational expenses. It's like, what do I need to survive? Like pay the mortgage, pay the car payment, pay for my dog's food, the things that like, it doesn't matter what lifestyle changes I make, like those things need to happen anyway. It's always good to have an idea for like, what is the baseline of what my life costs? That's layer one. That money needs to be set aside for those expenses. Then you've got kind of like the equivalent, but for business. It's like, well, what does it cost to keep the lights on? To like pay the people that work for me, if that's your situation, to pay for my email marketing provider or, you know, my like RSS feed for my podcast. What are the keep the lights on expenses for the business? So like get the bare bones expenses, understand what those look like and like set that money aside metaphorically. Now, if you're in that boat where you're like, oh my God, I'm making so much money and I don't know what to do with it. I'm like afraid I'm going to fuck it up. Fine. Let's just look at the margin, right? Like when we're looking at that margin, the next layer of like fat on top, the icing on the cake, if you will, is like, well, what lifestyle changes do I want to make? Like, let me be intentional about it. But Do I want to level up my lifestyle a little bit? Do I want to maybe move into a nicer apartment or a bigger apartment? Do I want to start paying for regular massages? Do I want to change the way that I'm eating and start buying better food? Like, I think that so often when I talk about this kind of stuff, I always jump to like, oh, well, let's talk immediately about the tax advantaged accounts. And it's like people's eyes close over and they fall asleep. I do think it makes a difference psychologically as you become more successful to intentionally layer in kind of like rewards for yourself and to make sure that you're taking care of yourself. So if you're going to work a lot harder and make a lot more money, maybe your self-care budget does need to expand. So let's look at that and let's plan for that. That is not though, it's just like blind lifestyle creep. Like we're not just going to start like swiping every time we like pass a cash register just because we're like rich bitch now. So I think that question of like, let me step back and understand like where I actually want to intentionally add new things, new expenses into the picture. So that should cover expenses and maybe business expenses too, like the equivalent, right? Of the kind of fluff. It's like, well, now that I have a little bit more money to play with, where could I intentionally level up in my business and then maybe make a bigger investment to continue growing? And that's also something that I think you probably speak a lot to is like how to make mindful and like intentional, impactful investments in your business. So now that we've talked about all the expenses, the necessary, the discretionary, the personal, the business, now you're probably still looking at quite a bit of margin, especially if you're making to quote, you know, more than you have ever made before. And you're like kind of terrified because you don't know what to do with it. Now we start talking about, okay, well, now we need to invest. I'm going to assume that the cash cushion is already there because you sound like you've been in business for a while. And maybe I shouldn't assume that. Maybe we do need to make sure that the cash cushion is there. But if you are a business owner, you probably are accustomed to having some months that are leaner than others. You want to make sure that even your leanest month can cover all of those expenses that you just you know rattled off without you having to cut back. Like 
Jen does not want to have to stop drinking Starbucks because she's having a slow month, right? Like you want everything to be covered by the lean months. But if it's not, that's where that kind of like, oh shit, cash cushion can come into play and can supplement you. So depending on your expenses, I'm going to start growing out numbers just to kind of give us something to, you know, glom onto. But if I spend $5,000 a month, throwing it out there, 5000 a month, and my lean months sometimes are $3,000 of income, like really bare bones, then I know that that extra 2000 to meet my needs is going to have to come from somewhere. I would look at potentially having multiples of your monthly expenses kind of just always waiting in the wings. Three months is probably safe. I know we had just talked about like, hey, I'm about to leave a full-time job. You know, you should have like six months at a minimum ready. That's in the beginning, right? Like that's like, I haven't gotten my feet under me yet. I don't really have cash flow or like I don't have reliable, predictable cash flow. Once you've got your feet under you and you're kind of moving and grooving, then having too much cash can almost become like a hindrance because it's it's going to drag down your portfolio, right? Like it's not invested. So it's not growing for you. I think three months of expenses in cash on the side should give you enough buffer so that if you have a lean month, your lifestyle does not have to change and it's not stressful. It's like, okay, well, let me just pull some of that oh shit fund in, use it this month. And then the next time I have a fat month, I'm going to contribute, get it back up to my three months, you know, restore the balance in that account. So that's your cash cushion, right? That's kind of the middle layer. Top of the layer here, the top of the cake is our investing. So now we're talking about true margin. This is not money that has to be used for expenses. This is not money that has to be used for the business. Our cash cushion is fully funded. Now we are talking about the true margin. So with that margin, what makes the most sense, in my opinion, is to make sure that you are taking advantage of every tax advantage that you have. So that means the solo 401k or the SEP IRA, both of which you can contribute 20% of your net business income. It's kind of a funky calculation because when you go to it, you know, you'll read online 25%, but that's after you deduct half your self-employment tax. So the way that a CPA described it to me is like it's easier just to think 20% of net business income. You can put 20% of net business income invest it into a solo 401k or SEP IRA as a self-employed person, and you will not pay federal income tax, state income tax on that money. You will still pay self-employment income tax on it, unfortunately. The only way to get rid of self-employment income tax is to have a write-off, to say, okay, well, I spent this money on something for the business, so I'm going to write it off. You don't have to pay self-employment income tax on that money. But the federal rate that you could be paying, if you are in this boat that you're describing, it might be pretty high. So you could save a lot of money by investing in those SEP IRAs and those solar 401ks. If after you put in 20% of your net business income into those types of accounts, if you still have margin, I would say, look at the Roth IRA. You can put 6,000 a year into those. Look at the individual taxable account. An individual taxable account is a great place to store extra cash that you might need in the next couple of years because it can grow in the market and there are no contribution limits, no penalties to get it out. I just always tell people, make sure you're not paying the government more money than you need to be. Like, Don't let Uncle Sam take more of your hard-earned money than he needs to. Make sure you are taking advantage of those solo 401ks and SEP IRAs. You know, Pick one or the other. The SEP IRA is easier to open, but you'll probably be able to put more into a solo 401k just because of the way the contributions work. I don't like to pay more in taxes than I need to. You probably don't either. So I would say that's kind of my order of operations for thinking about making a lot of money. I love that advice. That was so good. And I love that you touched on retirement. The other thing I would add on is if you're a business owner and you are making a lot of money, if you're like, I've never made this much before. I don't know what I'm doing. Get in touch with a tax strategist because yeah. a tax strategist will save you so much money. Yeah. I believe it's around, don't quote me on this, but I believe it's 50 to 60 thousand per year in profit is when you should switch your business over to an S-Corp. And when you switch over to an S-Corp, you're subject to pass-through taxes. Mm-hmm. So your taxes end up being less than you were when you were an LLC. And we also do a thing that's called the Augusta Rule, where mm-hmm. my business gets to rent my house for like $1,000 a month. And that's a tax write-off. Like You have access to so many amazing tax strategies as a business owner. So take advantage of them. Yep. 
Love that. I think, yeah, working with a professional, even if it's just go see an hourly CPA and explain everything to them and let them kind of make those types of, make those types of recommendations for you, it can pay off tenfold. So totally, totally agree. Absolutely. Yeah. And don't let your money just sit there. Please, for the love of God, don't let it keep. Yeah. Even if you don't hire a CPA, even if you don't open a solo 401k, if you do nothing else, like at least invest it somewhere so that you're getting some growth. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Well, I'm excited. How can everybody find you? How can they buy from you? How can we support you? Oh my gosh. Thank you for asking that question. So you can find me on Instagram at moneywithkatie. You can also find me at moneywithkatie.com. If you want to email me, if you want to talk, if something I said inspired you or interested you or pissed you off and you want to talk about it, katie at moneywithkatie.com is my email address. Same on Twitter. So pretty much if I'm on the platform, it's at moneywithkatie. And yeah, new blog posts every Monday, new podcast episodes every Wednesday. That's the kind of publishing cadence that we've got right now. So exciting. And then you have this really incredible wealth planner, correct? Yes, we just launched the 2022 Wealth Planner. It's the third evolution of the Wealth Planner. Thanks for reminding me. I honestly forgot. That launched three days ago, and we've already got over a thousand people using it, which is really, really cool. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. Okay, everybody go buy the Wealth Planner today. (laughs) Thank you, Jen. Thank you. Of course. Well, money, Katie. Katie, I loved having you. You were amazing. Congratulations on all of your Thank you. I can't wait to keep cheering you on this year and watching from the sidelines. I know you're going on to do incredible things. So thanks for joining us. Jen, thank you so much. And thank you for just being you. You inspired me so much when I first met you and I interviewed you about being a business owner and working for yourself. And I remember you told me how much money you were making as an online business owner. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Like the original mind blown expander for me of what is possible. So thank you for being that for me and for so many others. I'm sure it really was a pleasure to talk to you today. Oh, Katie, thank you.